If you have your uh, copy of God's Word with you, with you, would you uh, pull it out and open it up to Romans, Romans chapter 2. If you don't own a Bible, we have free Bibles in the back. I'd love for you to leave here today with a copy of God's Word in your hand. Best thing you can own, right church? It is. Best thing you can own, have a copy of God's Word. So there's free ones on the table in the back, but there's some in the racks around you if, if you want to read one right now. You'll also see the words up on the screen. Romans chapter 2, where we're going to be this morning. A um, couple things before we dive into that. If you're coming next weekend for the event, um, just a heads up, ladies especially, you're going to want to wear um, foot covering that's appropriate for grass. In other words, don't wear high heels, right? You're going to be poking holes in the soil out there. But they've done a great job mowing that area. We can park a few hundred cars, so that won't be a problem. And, and I say that um, in truth because I know there will be a lot of people, so I'm encouraging you to get there as early as you can. Michael did a, a YouTube video earlier this week, put it on Facebook, and he's already had 1,500 views. So I know there's a lot of people interested in what's going on. I'm just encouraging you to get there as early as you can so that you can walk the distance to get over to where we're going to be seated at. Um, and, and in light of that, um, if you're really able to volunteer, we have like 50 that are signed up so far, but we could probably use 30 more volunteers. Don't forget about that clipboard that Michael mentioned in the back. Okay, one other thing before we dive in. I just want to give a shout out to our live streaming audience who are watching right now. I got an email from somebody earlier this week, that um, a, a small group who watches the service in Texas, and um, the small group sitting together Last weekend, at the end of the service, we are able to lead one of their individuals in their small group to Christ last Sunday afternoon. So, how cool is that, right? So, hey, Texas, glad to see you. Thanks for joining us. Okay. So, yeah, there's people watching from, from around the country, and we get notes from people around the world, actually, who are tuning in. That's a very, very cool thing. I want to catch you up on some things in Romans and where we were at last week when we left off, but let me pray with you first and then we'll jump in. Father, we come before you and recognize that you can do all things and there's nothing that you are limited by. So we come before you and ask because we know it's your will that your Holy Spirit, not only who's present in our bodies right now because we're believers in Jesus, that you take up residence in us, but because your Holy Spirit is in this auditorium, God, we ask that you would be our teacher, that you would show us things that we can't see on our own. We don't understand how it works, but it just happens that you give us insight. So that's what we're asking for right now. Give us a capacity to see and understand, eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray for this in Jesus' mighty name, amen. So last week, and in the last few weeks actually, we've been talking about God's judgment. And Romans 2 brings that out a lot. And frankly, I'm looking forward to being done with Romans chapter 2, I just got to say. Right? So this morning, actually, we're going to be done with Romans chapter 2. We're going to do 12 verses this morning, uh, verse 17 to verse 29. And, and it doesn't, it's not going to drag, it's going to move along at a pretty quick pace, and you'll understand why in just a minute. But last week when we ended, we were still talking about God's judgment and many people get hung up on that verse that we left off on, on verse 16. Even Christians, so look with me on the screen at verse 16 or maybe in your Bible, and it says this, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. And many people catch the first part. Man, God's going to look at my secrets. And it causes them to be really, really afraid, and they miss the last part. It's through Christ Jesus. Praise God, church, that it's through Christ Jesus. 
that he is our mediator. So our judge is going to be the one who died for us. That's who sits on the throne. Is that worth praising God about? It is. It's a truth. Jesus sits on the throne, and he knows every one of your secrets, and he forgives them anyway. That's good news. That's good news for us to be reminded of. So we didn't just talk about judgment last week. We also talked about this concept of Jew and Gentile because Paul's really bringing it out in Romans 2. And if you're new to church, it can cause you to be confused. Like, is, is he talking about the biological race? What's he talking about here? It comes out strongly, so we need to understand what he's talking about. So let me remind you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God says in his word, there is neither Jew nor Gentile in Jesus Christ. You are a royal priesthood, a chosen nation. Look with me on the screen at this. This verse says this in 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He's writing that to the church. He's not writing that to the Jewish nation. He's writing that to the believers in Christ. So not only are you holy, if you just said a few minutes ago, I am holy, but you're also chosen by God, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. That's awesome news. So Scripture goes on to say, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So for the purposes of understanding where we're going in these last few verses in Romans chapter 2, we need to understand this Jew and Gentile thing the way that Paul's bringing it out. So when he begins talking about Jews, he's talking about people who have a really privileged position. As a people who were the inheritors of the promises that God had made, they were very, very privileged to be in the position that they had as a nation. But individually, those individuals still had to respond individually to the truth that God had revealed. Now, that's the Jew, but for the Gentile and the Greek, those are people who can be in a relationship with God, but those people lack the information for that to happen. It hasn't been revealed to them yet. So if you're looking for a big picture, and I'll give it to you from the very beginning of what, what is this going towards in Romans 2 here in these last few verses? It's going towards this. Being in a relationship with God is to have a position of privilege. It absolutely is but it is also to be in a position of responsibility. We not just have the privilege of eternal life. We not just have the privilege of forgiveness of our sins, but we also have a responsibility. So we should not only know who we are, I am holy, we should also know whose we are, that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, but we should also understand we have a huge responsibility to walk in that. So let's go into Romans chapter 2 and verse 17 and see what Paul says here. Verse 17, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, stop right there. We're going to do 17, 18, 19, and 20 as one chunk, but just stop right there. If you know Paul, you can feel it coming, can't you? You can tell this guy's about to uncork on somebody. He's about to go against somebody who's really playing out this religious role. If you're looking for a definition of religion, look in your notes this morning in your bulletin. And at the very top, item number one, it gives a very simple religion definition that I stole from Chuck Swindoll. Religion, he said, is doing external things to make a person worthy of salvation. 
Now, we know that that's not true. You can't earn salvation. But when people think of religion, they think of doing things that will make you right with God. Donald Barnhouse says it's ritual without redemption. That's what religion really kind of boils down to. All kinds of ritual, but no redemption involved. So let's understand this the way that Paul's writing it. In verse 17, he says, if you bear the name Jew. If you've ever wondered where the name Jew came from, it's the root of the word Judah. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One of them was the name Judah, was named Judah. Judah means to be praised, praised of Yahweh. So the name Jew is a derivation of the word Judah or the name Judah. Now, when the Jews living in this biblical time heard that they're not only called Jews, they understood that it means to be praised. And they think of themselves as, that's a great title for us. We deserve that because we're the chosen people of God. We, we belong to him. And their national identity is intimately bound with Moses and the law. And whenever you read, especially you'll read this morning in Romans 2, the word law, whenever you read that, here's what you should be thinking of. The law means the first five books of the Bible, the books that Moses wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But it also means the writings of King David in the book of Psalms and the writings of King Solomon in the book of Proverbs. And it means the major and the minor prophets like Daniel, Hosea, Jeremiah. So when they hear the word law, they're thinking of those set of books. They had that given to them. They are the Jews who are the people of the law. Now gradually, because they have this great privilege, privilege gives birth to self-righteousness. And by the time Paul sits down to write the book of Romans, the Jewish people as a nation had lost their identity as the channel through which God meant to bless all the families of the earth. That's what God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, through you, Abraham, I will bless all the peoples of the earth. But the Jews had lost sight of that. No longer did they have any desire to share these God-given truths with the rest of the world, much less draw all the nations to themselves. Let me give you an example of that. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably heard the story of Jonah and the whale. Now, the story of Jonah and the whale has its roots in the history of an individual who was a prophet by the name of Jonah. And God said to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go to the great city, the great city God called it, the city of Nineveh. There were hundreds of thousands of people, Gentiles, living in that city who had no relationship with God whatsoever. Jonah said, I don't like your idea, God. I'm going the other way. So he got on a ship, went out to sea, and that's how he got swallowed by a great fish. Now, when the fish spits him back up on land, God says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell those people. Jonah doesn't want to go simply because he knows if he goes there, those people are going to respond. So by the time you get to Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, you find Jonah shaking his fist at God, saying, see, I told you. I knew that if I went to those people in Nineveh, you were going to turn them around, and it's exactly what they did. They heard about this God because Jonah did what he was told, and people responded. The Gentiles got into relationship with God, and Jonah got mad about it. What you see in the story of Jonah is the typical attitude that the Jews had adopted towards people who were not Jewish. 
Now, Paul is not besmirching them at this point. He's just telling them who they are. He says, You're, you bear the name Jew, you've got the law, and you rely on the law. Now, if you rely on the law, it's got this notion that you're resting on something, meaning you've copped an attitude. I, I'm resting on something because it's going to make me righteous. That's their thought as they look at the law. So their boast is in God whom he knew, the Jew knew God, and he thought nobody else knows him. So it's the basis, the law is the basis of all their hope. It's the sign of God's favor. And then Paul says, you not only have the law of God, you also know the will of God. Look at it in verse 18. You know the will of God. Do you notice that he doesn't say the Jews claim to know the will of God? He says, you know the will of God. You understand it, and you actually can read it. And as a result of that, you can approve the things that are essential in verse 18. When you approve the things that are essential, it means to test something. It was used of the coin industry when they would test the quality of the metal within the coin. When you approve of something, you're determining whether or not it has value. Now, that same concept translates over to the church today. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you're told to approve of the things that are excellent in your life, whether or not they're worth your time. Look with me on the screen, Philippians 1.9. And this I pray that your love may abound still the more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent. Right now you might be thinking, what does that look like? How do I do that in my life? How do I prove the things that are excellent? Well, just by evaluating. What are you spending your time on? Are you wasting time throughout the day on frivolous activity? Are you wasting energy and things that produce no real value? Here's an example. Gossip. Everybody does it. Everybody gossips. What we try to do is put a cap on it and say, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Scripture says don't gossip because it's a waste. You just disparage someone else's character, and you're wasting all kinds of energy getting caught up in things that have no real value whatsoever. That's why Paul says you know how to prove the things that are excellent. And then he says you're also people who are instructed out of the law. Now, if you grew up in a denominational church, you're probably very familiar with this word instructed that he's using. In the Greek language, it's the word katekeo. You see it in your notes, and you also see it on the screen. This particular word has the root meaning of the word catechism. Who, who grew up in catechism, if you don't mind just putting your hand up? Quite a number of us, right? You understand it. Here, here's the concept behind catecheo. It, it, it's, it's like echo, right? When you shout in a tunnel, you hear something echoing, but it actually means to shout down someone's ear canal. Echo, hear this, hear this, hear this, hear this. It keeps being repeated. So catecheo, to sound down into the ears, meaning... When training someone in the things of God's law, they heard it over and over and over again. So young boys growing up in catechism became teenagers, became young men, and over and over and over again, they heard the word of the law to the degree that by the age of young adult men, they had memorized massive portions of the law. When I heard that when I was 14, I thought, I'm going to try that. So I started memorizing the book of Genesis. Try that someday. Uh, I started with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and I memorized the first six chapters. And then I realized the kind of brain capacity it takes because I hit chapter 6, and I realized I really can't take in any more information. 
These guys heard it so much, so often, that they could recite Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, forward and backwards by the age of 12. So Paul is writing to them, you have been instructed in the law. You know the word of God. In verse 19, he finishes it up by saying, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. And he says, you are confident that you're a guide to the blind. Why does he use that phrase? Because they pictured themselves as guides, spiritual guides to those who didn't have the information. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, and the first synagogue he walks into, they hand him the scroll of Isaiah because he requests it. He opens it up to Isaiah 42, and he begins reading, I have been sent to give sight to the blind. That audience totally understood why he was saying that because that's what they were called to do. Jesus actually called the Pharisees blind guides for a reason. Why? Because the Jews looked at all the Gentile world and they considered them to be spiritually completely blind without any vision whatsoever. Now here's the trouble. The problem with assuming the position of a guide puts you in a superior position, meaning you believe that everybody who needs guidance is inferior, that they need you. And the Jew had no natural superiority because they received revelation from God. They'd be in the exact same place the Gentiles were in if God hadn't done what he had done. So catch what Paul's doing here in these first four verses. He's not disagreeing. He's not disagreeing with their privileged position. He says it's a really very real advantage. Say amen if you agree with this. It is a priceless privilege to be the recipient of God's word. It is, church. I mean, it's awesome. To be able to receive what God has revealed and understand it and apply it to your life, it is a priceless privilege. And that's what Paul is saying to these individuals. You've got the word of God. However, instead of being a light to those living in darkness, the Jews withdrew from culture because they didn't like where culture was going. They didn't like what culture was defined by. That the culture was too dark. They're too polluted. We'll just huddle down into our own little group and we won't go there and hang out with those people. In truth, this people group was given the task to teach all mankind about God. That's why they were the chosen people, to share who God is, chosen to share. So this truth was never meant to be a private treasure. Israel was chosen to bring God's light into the darkness. Now, Paul has spent the first four verses telling them who they are, just like we did in the very beginning of the service. We're holy. We're chosen. We're a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. Paul has spent some time telling them who they are. Now he changes angles, and he becomes like a prosecuting attorney in verse 21. Go with me into that. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? Now, the word preach is really kind of unexpected here because he's talking to a group of church people. And, and you're not thinking that they're all preachers, but why is he using the word, do you preach? The word preach was always associated with ancient monarchies, with kings and their kingdoms. So when the king wanted an announcement put out before his community, before the people he ruled over, he would literally say to his herald, his crier, 
I want you to go to such and such cities in my province and announce things like, the king is having a ball. The king is having a ball. All young maids are to come to the ball, right? And we're thinking Cinderella right away, okay? That's the responsibility of the town crier or the preacher. So he's saying, you who preach that people shall not do certain things, are you doing it yourself? Human nature is always tempted to grade moral behavior, right? We, we know that because we are one. We understand human nature. We are tempted to grade moral behavior in other people. So surprisingly, very strangely, almost catches us by like shock, our own dishonesties have a way as coming out minor when other people's faults come out as major, right? That, that's human nature. And Paul says, are you, you preaching people shall not do something, but you're doing it yourself? Here's the assumption as you're reading these verses. The assumption we can make as we're looking at this is these individuals are not carrying out what they're proclaiming. They're teaching one thing to the blind, but they're doing something entirely different themselves. Go to verse 22. You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, though you're, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? It might surprise you to find out that the people of the Bible times, adultery was rampant with them. Adultery was widely accepted as a common behavior, both in the ancient Jewish world and in the Greek-Roman world. Common behavior taken as quite normal. But the Jew understood he had a really high standard. God said you should not commit adultery. You shall not deviate from the one that you're aligned with. But the Jews knew that. However, their behavior was completely different. So here's what many men tried to do. Many men tried to circumnavigate God's law by finding ways, excuses, by which they could divorce their first wife or second or third in order to go after the one they were more interested in. He said, so you who practice adultery, do you preach against it? And in verse 22, you who abhor idols? So the Jews prided themselves in this monotheistic understanding of one God and one God alone. We understand that about the people of the Bible. He's saying, you who abhor idols, do you rob? Why does he attach robbery with abhorring idols? Well, as you see this word on the screen, it's your only second Greek word this morning, and we're only doing two, is this next word, deluso. And when you think of this word abhor, you have to think of something that stinks to high heaven, right? Just think of something that absolutely reeks. Think of, of going to your trash container in July when it's 101 degrees outside and you got to lift that lid and you know it's coming and you got to put a bag inside there and as you lift the lid that lid just draws the air right out into your nostrils right you go oh man and you want to do anything but hang out there you want to run the opposite way that's the concept behind abhor Paul understood them because he's Jewish he understood there are things that they absolutely loathed like handling Roman coins because when Rome took over Israel, Caesar minted coins with his own image on the coin. And Caesar had proclaimed himself God, small g. So the Jews didn't want anything to do to associate with these individuals who worshiped Caesar as God. They didn't even want to handle the coins from that country in their hands, but they had to in order to exist within that sphere that they lived in day in and day out. So he attaches this concept, do you rob? Where's that coming from? 
Well, let's just imagine that you've got a day off and you find out that your neighbor, and you're Jewish, and you find out that your Gentile neighbor is having a garage sale. So you show up at his garage sale on Saturday morning and you've got some cash in your hands and, and you're thinking, oh, I'm just going to see what's for sale. And you see a box and your Gentile neighbor says to you, you know what, for five bucks you can have everything that's inside that box. And so you think that's a deal. And you buy his box of belongings and you take it home and you find out when you unpack that box that there's a whole bunch of Gentile idols that your neighbor was clearing out that are in the bottom of your box. Paul knew that this was a common practice among the people of this time, that they would find or come across or inherit idols and decide, you know, there's value in those. I've got to be a good steward of God's money. So I'm thinking maybe my other Gentile neighbors might need to buy some idols, and they began selling idols. So they didn't make the idols. They didn't worship them themselves but they're causing the Gentiles to have something and they're profiting from it. So Paul's calling them out. Is your behavior consistent with the things you say? That's why he's listed who you are in 17, 18, 19, and 20. But you're behaving like this. See, it's one thing to have knowledge of God's ways. It is quite another thing entirely to carry it out. So Paul's just saying, your practice denies your profession. You're like a corrupt judge. You've been put on the bench to enforce the law, but you're on the take on the side, and you're being bribed. Paul's calling them out specifically because that is their behavior. Verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. So he's quoting the Old Testament there. He's quoting Isaiah, and he's quoting Ezekiel. And if you know anything about the Bible whatsoever, you know that when Isaiah was writing his things down, and Ezekiel was writing his things down, this was the worst time in the history of Israel. They had rejected God for so long and gone their own way for so long. God kept saying, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. There's going to be repercussions. You keep doing what you're doing. I'm going to have to punish you. And ultimately, God sent them off into captivity in Babylon and in Assyria, taken as captives by the nations that they hated because they had rejected God, living like the rest of the world, embracing the things of the world, and God said, stop it. There's going to be repercussions for this. And then when they were taken captive, God said this. You see it on the screen, Isaiah 52, 5, God's own words. All day long, my name is constantly blasphemed. Why? Because now they're the captives of foreign nations. And the foreign nations are saying to them, you're the chosen people of God? Like, he can't even protect your backside and keep you from us, your enemies? Like, what kind of a God is that? Who wants to be associated with that? Besides, you're living just like us. You're no different than us. So God's saying all day long, my name is being dragged through the streets like I'm a piece of trash. Here's the principle for the church. This greatly speaks to us in 2016. I'm not talking about new hope. I'm talking about the church of Jesus Christ. Very strong application. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, not only have great spiritual light, we not only have Genesis to Revelation, the complete revealed Word of God, but we also have the power of the Holy Spirit of God living in us. We have great light and great power. So, when a believer falls into repetitive sin, and hear the word repetitive, I'm not talking about the occasional mess up in your life. I'm talking about day in, day out, over and over and over again, 
showing no victory over some sin that's got a hold of you. When a believer falls into repetitive sin, their witness is damaged and the name of Jesus is trashed and becomes polluted by the people who know them. You might think, how is that possible? Because there's no difference in the life of that believer and the world. And somebody's telling that person who's a non-believer to turn to God? A non-believer has no reason to turn to God, just like the ancient people who took Israel. If they're seeing the people of God committing the exact same sin they're told to repent of. Hear this, students. If you hear nothing else, if you're in your teenage years or you're in your 20s, you don't want to learn this when you're 40. Hear this. To bear the name of Jesus Christ is a sacred trust. It is to be called Christian means you belong to the living Lord Jesus Christ. It is a privilege and it's a sacred trust. Wear that responsibility with honor because to violate that trust has repercussions. Because a hypocritical life, the world can see right through that. And it leads other people to blaspheme the name of Jesus. So for the Jews, instead of representing God, they're causing other people to blaspheme him in contempt. Don't miss the significance for the church today. Now, I understand God's heart on this, and I think you're catching it as you look at Romans 2. This is just Mark's paraphrase, but this is the way I hear God saying it. It is my heart, my long desire to draw everyone into relationship with me to see those who are living in darkness to be saved from their sin. But your sin, Christ follower, is so blatant. The unbelievers can laugh at my name. I'm not yelling at you, by the way. I like you, okay? Just, I, I, I don't want you to feel like I'm just pounding on you. It, it's, it's just, it's the reality of where the church is at today. People have lost an understanding of what it means to be a true Christ follower and live as though God called them to be a holy people, a nation for his own purpose. I don't know if you've ever read Francis Schaeffer before, but Francis Schaeffer is somebody you need to read. Great commentator, great theologian. Look with me at his quote up on the screen. We must admit, this is surely how God looks at much of Christendom today. Claiming to be under the umbrella of Christendom, claiming to have some sort of special blessing because in the United States great numbers of people go to church and yet we commit blasphemy against God as we turn from the clear teaching of his word. It is a sober truth and we must face it. If we have the Bible, we enjoy all the blessings it brings and yet by our lives bring shame upon God's name. We are guilty of the greatest irreverence and the last sentence is the one that's really sticking with me. When the man with the Bible treats it as an external thing only, it causes the man without the Bible to dishonor the God of the Bible. Isn't that powerful? You want that? Just email me. I'll send that quote on to you so that you have it yourself. Let's, let's finish this up. Verse 25. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And if you're new to church, you're thinking, what? Why is he talking about surgery? What, is, what does that have to do with what, what is this physical action? Why bring up circumcision? Circumcision was the sign of admission to the covenant, meaning that you're a member 
of God's chosen people. It was the thing that God said, you're going to do this. It's an act of obedience. So every day, throughout the day, they were reminded of their relationship with God when they saw the physical mark upon their life. Now keep in mind, circumcision didn't originate with the Jews. It's very ancient. Abraham circumcised his son Ishmael long before the Jewish people became a nation. The Egyptians practiced circumcision for hundreds of years before the Jewish people came on the scene. So what's the big deal with it? God says this is going to be a sign of your membership to my covenant. And that covenant membership meant keeping the covenant. So Paul says, logically, circumcision is a value, but only if you're practicing the law, meaning living in obedience to God. See, he's not attaching any, he's not attaching any saving value to the physical act. Why is that so important to clarify? Because he lives in a period of time when you could show up at church synagogues, and people were teaching things that if you were circumcised, you automatically got a ticket into heaven. Let me show you one of the quotes from the first century from an ancient rabbi. In the hereafter, Abraham will sit at the entrance to hell and permit no circumcised Israelite to descend therein. Like What? Where did you get that from? You can't find that in the Bible. These are the traditions of men that were handed down. So you could show up at a synagogue and people were saying things like that. Rabbis were saying things like that. Now, if you have been raised in the church, you're looking at that thinking, that's ridiculous. Who would ever buy into, who would believe that you could commit a physical act that would save your spiritual soul? I promise you, church, you have friends, relatives, coworkers who think that because they got baptized as a baby, they got their ticket punched for heaven. I promise you, there are people that you know who go to church that think because they swallow the grape juice and eat a piece of bread that they're good with God. That because they take communion, they have earned salvation. I promise you, because this is a common thought, this is the way individuals think. Some people consider themselves Christian just by being born into a Christian home. It's rampant throughout Europe, as though it's something that you get biologically. According to the Bible, a person raised in a Christian home is not saved by legacy. Taking communion doesn't make you saved. Being baptized doesn't make you saved. It's just the evidence that you are saved. Somebody say amen. It's the truth of God's word. It's just the evidence that you are saved. So in biblical times, this kind of thinking was common among the ancient Jewish people. That circumcision was proof that you're good with God. All it really was was just this mark of obligation. It just made the bearer more responsible because the ritual that they went through was just a witness to the fact, I've got knowledge of God and what he requires. See, Paul's point here is, It's absolutely unthinkable that after somebody goes through these rituals, they would fail in their relationship with God because it's just hypocritical. Who would go publicly and say, this is who I am, but would live completely differently? So he says in verse 25, but if you're a transgressor of the law, it's become uncircumcision. In other words, you become surgically uncircumcised. You continually disobey God's law and you're giving evidence there's no relationship whatsoever. 
Okay, let's finish this. Verse 26 says it almost the exact same way, so I'm not going to spend much time on it. Let's just see the way that Paul wrote it. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who physically is, un- is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Here's just understand what he's saying here. The one who lacks the law, a lot of people did at the time Paul wrote this, A lot of people didn't have a copy of God's Word available to them. They didn't know what God said. The one who lacks the written law, but he's acting in his heart in accordance with the spirit of the law. Paul's saying, those people, they're going to stand as a witness at the judgment one day. They're going to stand before God and say, I knew. How come you didn't know? I didn't even have the law. You had the law, and you didn't even act on the things that you knew to act on? See, think back to what we just talked about with Jonah and Nineveh a few minutes ago. Because Jesus uses that very setting of Jonah going into the city of Nineveh as an example of people who didn't have the information standing up as witnesses one day. Look with me on the screen at Luke 11.32. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. How can they say that? Because the men of Nineveh said, if we had the information, we would have responded. And the evidence is when Jonah went there, they did respond. So they can stand as witnesses and say, why didn't you tell us? You had the information. See, in the final analysis, Paul's point is it's the conduct that prevails. Last two verses, verse 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Kind of a complicated sentence, but there's no doubt of the meaning. He's saying it's not the outward that matters, it's the inward that matters. Because outwardly, that's just what the public eye sees. What matters is what God sees, and God sees everything. He sees your heart. Let me remind you of 1 Samuel. Look on the screen, 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Okay, last verse, verse 29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Now, if you're reading that, I know, I know it's hours getting late, so just stay hang with me. If you're reading that and you're thinking, what could praise God, what could God cause God to praise me? How how does that work? Because that's one of the few places you find in the Bible where we're told God is going to praise those who are in relationship with him. We're used to standing up. New Hope's used to praising God, right? We're, We're used to praising God, bringing glory to God. What in the world could cause God to praise me? I want you to chew on that thought for just a minute while I look at these two really emphatic terms. He says this circumcision is of the heart in verse 29. He's he's leaning back into some Old Testament passages where God says true circumcision is the surgery I do on a heart. The Bible makes it really, really clear. Don't trust in outward ceremonies. Don't trust in outward objects. We don't put any confidence in the flesh. But the word circumcision is used as a metaphor to symbolize the right relationship with God, people who are in the right place with God. 
And then comes this huge emphatic term. He says that kind of circumcision is done by the Spirit. Salvation comes because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Right, church? Okay. Salvation comes by the finished work of Jesus Christ through the activity of the Holy Spirit. So Paul has just linked the Spirit with the circumcision of the heart. And he says this real circumcision is the work of the Spirit, a circumcision of your heart, a surgery that opens up and reveals what's going on and it peels back the layers. Only God can do that. No man can do that. No object, no procedure, no outside behavior can do that. Only God, Philippians 3, 3, we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and in the glory of Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So this authentic relationship is internal, not external, and those who experience it hear this. Well done. When you think of God praising you one day, we're already told, already told by Jesus himself, there is a day coming when the follower of Jesus Christ is going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Get in here and enjoy the things that I have prepared for you. I know that's not exactly the way that he said it, all right? But that's God praising people who took that step and trusted him. Now, five things to help you apply this to your life very specifically. It, not in your notes. If you want them, I'll send them to you later. But just look at this, how this fits with us. Paul wrote to the Jews and he said, if you call yourself a Jew, he said, this is what your title is. What is our title, church? We wear the label Christian and we wear it with honor, and we wear it with dignity. And this possession of God's truth, just like Israel possessed God's truth, it comes with enormous responsibility to be stewards of the word of God. We teach the full counsel of God here at New Hope. So that sometimes means taking a couple years to go through the book of Romans. Sorry, but right, that, that's the truth. We, we take this possession of God's truth seriously. And what about this unique relationship? You can leave here today knowing that you are an adopted son or an adopted daughter of the living God. What a unique privilege for us. So in what do we boast? We boast, if anything, in Jesus Christ. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. What about the knowledge of God's will? This one comes right down to ground street level where it applies to our life. The Bible makes it incredibly clear. It is the will of God that all of creation would be taken back from the evil one. That this fallen world would be restored to the kingdom of God. We know that is God's will because he said, I am not willing that anyone would perish. So that translates over to the very last one, our responsibility. No wonder Jesus appears at the end after the crucifixion and stands to before this large crowd of his followers and says, Matthew 28, go therefore and teach this truth to all the nations, baptizing them. God gave it to us really, 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 really clear to make disciples of all nations. We are a chosen race, 
a privileged people. But let's not keep that privilege to ourselves. Amen? Get it out there and make it known. That's God's desire for us. I'm going to pray that that truth would be real in your life. I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would apply things where you needed to learn this morning, myself included. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would help us not to quickly forget this. It's so easy. We're thinking where we're going for lunch right now, and do I have my car keys? Keep us from being distracted. God, in a moment like this, focus us. Remind us of the things you just pressed on our heart about. You've spoken, and we asked for you to do that. So God, as we leave here, let us leave feeling a a portion of your presence, your, your pressing upon us. I ask for your blessing for every person who's come in this auditorium. They've taken time to understand you better. God bless them for that. And now send us out in the power of the living Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us that we might walk in boldness before you. We pray for this in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, Amen. amen. Have a great week, New Hope.